Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. Um, uh, Every week, there are hundreds upon hundreds that join us online. And there are some weeks when there are thousands that join us from across the nation and different places all across the world. A few weeks ago, we had a couple thousand people that joined us uh, online on one Sunday morning. And so that number is just growing exponentially all the time. And and I want to give you an example of this. Jeff Erskine. Uh, who used to be a part of our church family before he began to do other work around the world, uh, he emailed me back this summer. He was in China. I was in Peru visiting our family that are missionaries there. And uh, Jeff uh, came to Christ at our church in just like a miraculous way through a praying mother. And if any of you mothers out there praying for your kids, there is power in a praying mother. And his mother, Cheryl Erskine, part of our church family, she was praying for Jeff. And he, he had a wild ride, I'm telling you, quite, quite a story he went through. And then he came to Christ here at our church, and he was baptized here. And now he's a lawyer who fights human trafficking around the world. Is that cool? I mean, he was, had a rowdy life. And man, living in the fast, really going through some tough stuff. Comes to Christ, gets baptized here at our church, and now he's an attorney, a lawyer that fights human trafficking all around the globe. And here's what he wrote to me. Uh, this email. Hi, Pastor Glenn. I wanted to thank you for putting your sermons online as a podcast. Now, I want you to know right off the bat, I had nothing to do with that. Technologically, there's a technical term for me. It's called moron, all right? And so I had nothing to do. This is 100% our media team, and I am reading this in order to brag about our media team. He writes, I've been following Christ for almost 10 years now. During that time, I've done a lot of traveling for work, school, pleasure, and for my honeymoon. Sometimes I can't find a place to worship, so I listen to your sermons on my podcast application. I have listened in Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, Greece, France, Egypt, Israel, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Malaysia, Canada, Peru, Colombia, Costa Rica, Belize, and of course the United States. Today I am in China for work and just listened to the sermon earlier this morning. Please know that in some of the darkest parts of the world, the Lord uses Purpose Church to carry his light to this traveler. God bless all of you. I look forward to hearing more sermons in more countries that I am blessed to visit. Now, you did that. Your involvement in this ministry, your prayer, your serving, your giving, you you did that. And, and you're the ones that are supporting those, all those people being reached online uh, through our church. And I want to just ask you another favor. Now, how many of you have ever watched one of our services online? Let me, let me see. How many of you? Okay. Almost everybody. So you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about right now. And even though the 1111 service is probably the best in this area compared to the other services, uh, I, I still want to give a challenge to this service as well, even though you guys are, 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 are pretty good at this. Um, we've had terrific growth in our three services. I mean, we're just in a great, great period of growth uh, and outreach, and, and the three services have just grown wonderfully in the, last, um, in the last year. But we tend to be scattered all over the worship center. And one of the advantages, there's great advantages to being a church, that, you know, it's a worship center that seats 2,000 people, you know, that has capacity, 2,000 people. That's a wonderful thing. But let me tell you one of the downsides of it 
is when we kind of scatter all over the place. You know like when you're trying to build a campfire at your campground and you want to get the wood all together. You want to get the embers all together. You want to get the coals all together if you're grilling because that makes for a hotter fire. And so when you get people closer together, worship is, is, more, is better. My preaching, actually, if you want to improve my preaching, this will improve my preaching. I don't know that you've prayed, no, nothing's worked. Try this, okay, to improve my preaching. And, and so what I want to challenge you to do is the more we sit downstairs towards the front and in the center, the stronger our presentation will be online. And those of you that have ever watched online, you know exactly what, I, what I'm talking about. There's just, some, there's just something about it that the more, and just think of those three words, okay, downstairs, front, and center. And if you've ever watched online, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the reason I'm saying this is within a year, we might have as many if not more people joining us online from different places all across California and the country and even in the world. We might have more people there than, than here, even though we're growing here as people that are actually here. Uh, it's growing even more exponentially, those that are joining us online. So within a year, we might have as many or more people watching online uh, as, as we have here. And if we do those three things, down to the front and in the center, it just makes our message of Jesus that much stronger. Uh, now, I know some of you, especially when you come in late or whatever, you're like, oh, man, I don't want to walk in there and Glenn's going to see, oh, look, that person's late. I, that thought never passes my mind. I am totally a better late than never person, okay? If you know that about me, you know that personally how I live as well. Better late than never. I, I never think. To me, in this busy Southern California culture, if, if you get here to church 45 minutes late, you're still my hero. I'm telling you. You're my hero. I mean, if you get here with kids 45 minutes late, you're my double hero, all right? It's just, just amazing. So when somebody comes in late and they come and sit down here on the front or right in this area or something like that, I never think, oh, that person's late. I think to myself, dear God, bless that person. May they have 100 extra square feet on their heavenly mansion. May their swimming pool in heaven have an extra acre added to it. I'm always like, praise God for that person. Praise God for that person. Praise God. Now I'm going to really play the guilt card. You ready? I didn't even know this. But coming into church today, I didn't even know this, but somebody said to me, hey, Glenn, you know today is Pastor Appreciation Day? Okay, let me tell you how you can show your pastor. Okay. okay. Oh, man, I wasn't looking for that. No, no, no. Oh, man. That was so not my intent. Okay, okay. The other, the other services didn't do that. That's why I love you most of all. Here's how you can make every Sunday Pastor Appreciation Day. Three words. Sit downstairs, towards the front, in the center. Every Sunday can be Pastor Appreciation Day. Think down, front, center, okay? Um, and I think it'll even increase the power of our presentation as we share to people that are joining us online as well. Oh, I feel so bad fishing for a compliment. That's you know, just terrible. All right, let's talk about the book of Judges. That'll bring us down real fast. Now, last week, last week, 
uh, we ended with a challenge uh, to pass on our faith and values to the next generation. We, we, we finished up last week with that whole challenge about how you got to pass it on, your values, and, and it's like perfect for this service uh, for the child dedications that we just saw. Now, Monday night, I saw like a great example of this, great example of this. Now, you guys know the Green Bay Packers are my favorite team. But my favorite player actually doesn't play for the Packers. My favorite player is Drew Brees, who's the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. He is like this totally on fire Christian, on fire for Jesus. And he has been used by God. And not just Christ followers say this. Announcers say this all the time. Secular announcers say this all the time, that he has been used by God to give hope to the people of New Orleans, the city of New Orleans, in the aftermath of the Hurricane Katrina. And, and everybody says that about him. Well, Monday night, he became the all-time NFL passing leader with 72,103 yards. That's more than 40 miles of passing during his career. So, in that moment of glory, I mean, one of the greatest accomplishments in American sports history, at that, at that moment of glory, what's he thinking about at that moment? He uses that moment as an opportunity to coach his sons as to his values and the values that he wants to build into them. That moment of glory, he pivots and says, I want to teach my boys. Just like Moses said in Deuteronomy. He said, you teach your children as you're walking down the road. You teach your children as you're sitting at the dinner table. Even in the original Hebrew, it says, teach your children right after you've just passed the NFL passing uh, record. <laughs> right there, right in the original. Now, the reason we have to keep making it a priority to pass on our faith, to pass on our values to the next generation is because faith leaks. Faith leaks over time. Anybody want to say amen to that? It leaks. And we see that in, in Judges. Here's the chart we looked at last week where there's five S's that, that you see, the cycle, over and over again in Judges. Uh, they forget about God over time. And so uh, the faith leaks. And so they get into sin, which leads them into servitude. They, they get invaded and conquered by another nation. But then when they're in trouble, that's when we finally turn to God and we cry out to him in supplication. We ask God, save us. He sends salvation and then there's a period of peace and quiet and silence when over time we forget about God again, faith leaks, and then we get back into sin and you see the same thing, the same cycle happen again and again. Now today we're going to talk about Ehud. And Ehud is one of those interesting stories in all the Bible. Buckle in, this is going to be crazyville here today. Chapter 3, verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. See that cycle? Okay, they, they have a time of peace. They forget about God. Faith leaks. They do, they, now they get into sin. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Okay, see that sin? After a period of, of, of silence, they get into sin, and that leads them to servitude. Now the next verse, verse 13. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites, so the Moabite king, Eglon, gets the other nations to all gang up on the nation of Israel. Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. That's another name for the city of Jericho. It was also called the city of Palms. Verse 14. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Now, remember... When you think Moab, when you think Canaanites, think Nazi Germany. But think even worse than the Nazis. Can you imagine being under the Nazi regime for eight, something worse than the Nazi regime? For 18 years they were raped, they were pillaged, and they were murdered by the Moabites. Again, the Israelites 
cried out, uh, next verse, and again the Israelites cried out to the Lord, their supplication, and he gave them a deliverer, now comes salvation. Ehud, a left-handed man, a left-handed man. How many left-handed people do we have here? Wait up your left hand. There you are, okay. And it's been the same at each service. It's about 10, you know, it's about 10% of the world's population. 10% of the world's population is, is left-handed. Now, I am left-handed also, but I'm kind of a messed up left-hander. And I think something must have gone wrong in my childhood, which you probably have surmised a long time. All right. Uh, something must have gone off between the right and the left. Because I do all domestic things, eating and, and writing, I do with my left hand, but I do all sports with my right hand. And I can't do either of them well at all. I'm terrible at both. I mean, my handwriting is just horrific. My assistant, Tina, can you vouch to that? Uh, one of the criteria to be my assistant here is to be able to decipher my handwriting. It is, it is horrific. And sports, anything with hand-eye coordination, I'm just like terrible at it. I can't throw a baseball, can't throw a football, can't shoot a basket, can't kick a soccer goal. I mean, I just, I just messed up. And so I, I'm not ambidextrous, I'm ambaloserist in both of them, okay? You know, I, just, uh, I just can't do either of them, just kind of messed up. Now, who are some famous people that have been left-handed? President Obama uh, was, was left-handed. Uh, president Reagan, uh, former president, was, um, was, uh, was left-handed. Here's my favorite factoid for left-handers. Uh, in the 1992 presidential election, all three candidates were left-handed. And there's Ross Perot uh, gesturing with his left hand. Here's George H.W. Bush, and here's Bill Clinton. All three of the candidates in the 1992 uh, presidential election were all left-handed. Now, there are certain disadvantages to being left-handed. Um, you smear ink when, when you're left-handed. Uh, scissors are awkward when you're left-handed. Golf clubs are awkward. Um, skateboarders call it skating goofy when you skateboard uh, left-legged, I guess it would be, or left-handed. Uh, pants zippers feel awkward. I want to just show you how much I suffer here. Notebooks are a nightmare. Okay, you do a regular notebook, you're going to write in it. Look what, where these, these things are that keep you from writing on it. So these are all the weddings and funerals I've ever done in, in a ministry. And so instead I have to do them on this side, nothing on this side, so that I can write without. Do you see how hard my life is? Do you, do you, do you just appreciate how much that is? So these are, these are first world problems after all. So... Um, now, there are certain advantages to being left-handed. You have a greater chance of being a genius if you're left-handed. Uh, a higher percentage chance of having an IQ over 140 if you're left-handed. In sports, opponents aren't used to the movement of a southpaw. Uh, that's why a pitcher like Clayton, a left-handed pitcher like Clayton Kershaw is so valuable. He wasn't on Friday night, but he usually is more valuable. I, uh, true, true story. I'm sitting here Friday night at 7 o'clock on Friday night. I'm working on my sermon over in my office. And I just literally put that point into my notes. And I thought, let's check the score of the game. And literally, as I turned it on, he gave up the lead uh, losing. But he'll do better at home. He'll do better at home. Now, here's something really, really weird. I never knew till this week. Left-handers can see better underwater. I never heard that one. Uh, that's why Aquaman is, is left-handed. Everybody knows. <laughs> Actually, this is a total lie. He, he holds it in his right hand. But Pete Wilson, he can do crazy stuff. He pushes a button and it's in his left hand. That, that guy is like magic. Okay. Now, here's another advantage of being left-handed. Okay. You can pull a knife from an unexpected place. 
you're like, Glenn, it got weird in here. Yeah, you should At 9.45, it got like super quiet all at once. It just got weird. Hang on. That's going to matter in just a moment. Now, today it's just an inconvenience to be left-handed. But throughout history, people were way more cruel. I mean, the Latin word for left is sinister, which also means evil. The French word for left is gauche, which means awkward. The English word for left comes from an old English word that means weak. Now, in the Hebrew, let's go back to verse, uh, verse 15 there. Uh, in the Hebrew, it says, uh, literally, when it says that he was a left-handed man. Now, back to verse 15, I'm sorry. Uh, back verse 15, yeah. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Ehud, a left-handed man. When it says a left-handed man, it literally means he could not use his right hand. Doesn't it mean? It means he could not use his right hand. His right hand was either withered from some deformity at birth, or maybe he had an accident, so he was disabled. Now, people can be cruel to disabled people today, but back in history at this time, what is this, 1300 B.C., uh, 12, 1300 B.C., uh, 3,300 years ago, they were very, very cruel. And they would say, if your right hand is useless, then you are useless. But Ehud was brave, he was a man of faith, and he was available. He said, God, despite my withered right hand, which makes me utterly useless in the culture in which I live and rejected as an outcast, despite this disability, God, I may not have much ability, but I want to present to you my availability. Okay, let's check it out. Let's continue now with uh, verse uh, 16. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, about 18 inches long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Now, when he came into the king bringing the tribute, which is kind of like a tax that he would bring, and he had a bunch of other men to carry it because back then you gave your taxes through crops that you would bring. Now, they would search you. You'd go through security before you met with the king. But they would not search his right thigh because, after all, nobody was left-handed back then. They would, would intentionally make them go right even if they were naturally left-handed. And so they wouldn't search the left thigh where a right-hander would take his knife out. They wouldn't search the right thigh because they weren't looking for it under his clothing. Verse 17. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Now you're like, well, that's irrelevant. Oh, no, but it's not. Hang with me here. As a matter of fact, J.D. Greer says something, and I had to laugh because I have the exact same thought. I think of this. Whenever I think of Eglon in this story, I think of Jabba the Hutt. That, that is exactly who I think of when I think of him. But don't think Jabba the Hutt, okay? Um, think of Adolf Hitler, okay? Back to our Nazi regime thing. When you see what's going to happen to him, don't feel bad. Think Adolf Hitler. Uh, because even godly men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a mild-mannered Lutheran pastor in Germany during World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer took part in an assassination attempt on the life of Adolf Hitler. So think assassinating Hitler here, um, you know, that, that's the image that we should have in our mind. Now, I want to prepare you for, don't, if you don't like gross things, hang with me for two or three minutes and we're free and clear, okay? Uh, judges, if you're visiting with us today, it's not normally like this. If you're new to the Bible, it's normally not like this. Judges is the most graphic book in the Bible. 
as I said last Sunday, I think it was written to help 12-year-old boys fall in love with the Bible. I've actually heard of families that are bringing their boys out of children's ministry into the adult service just for this series because they want their 12-year-old boy to fall in love uh, with the Bible. Okay, hang with me just a couple minutes and then it'll be done. After Ehud, the sermon won't be done, this gross part will be done. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those that had carried it, the others that had carried the crops. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. Now, why would he do this? Well, he wanted to be alone because maybe it was a personal bribe. They brought the taxes, the tribute, but now he was going to add a personal bribe to it to the king. So he wanted in on that, didn't want anybody to see it. Or he wanted to hear the message from God before other people heard it because what if it's something that's politically dangerous like you will no longer be the king of Moab. He doesn't want others to hear that lead to political intrigue within the palace and maybe somebody would lead a coup against him. Uh, But why was he willing to be alone? I mean, presidents and dictators are never alone with anybody unless it's their family or something like that. Why, Why would he do that? Because he didn't see Ehud as a threat. Because Ehud had a withered or disabled right hand. And so he looks at the guy in front of him and sees him not as a threat because of his disability. Do you see where God can even use our weaknesses and our disabilities to accomplish his purpose? Can you see that? And he uses it here in this story. Leave us. And they all left. Next verse. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, because you would stand up to receive the message from God, as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Verse 22. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. That means exactly what you think it means. Uh, As a matter of fact, the New International Version, the translation we're using here, is actually being uh, polite, okay? It's literally, and the dung came out. Now, I'm I'm just teaching the Bible here, okay? I'm just teaching the Bible here. Hang with me. So the bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out And the fat closed in over it. Verse 23. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Verse 24. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself. Why would they think that? Note two verses earlier and think about it. All right. He must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. Verse 25. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall into the floor, dead. Verse 26. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. Verse 27. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Verse 28. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took 
possession of the Fords of the Jordan. Now, this was not a Ford dealership. What this was is that they were cutting off the escape route that led to Moab, and they allowed no one to cross over. Verse 29. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. Verse 30. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Now, believe it or not, some of the most important keys to spiritual victory are found in this colorful and disgusting story. All right. Number one, God's Savior would come in weakness. Now, the book of Judges opens with the mighty general Joshua leading a mighty army to victory. But notice the change in trajectory now in the book of Judges. Ehud is a left-handed, disabled leader. A Deborah that we're going to study, uh, I'm going to teach on next Sunday, was a woman. Now, in our context, nobody would think any of that. As a matter of fact, if we were going into battle, I think you'd rather have Pastor Lisa or Pastor Tomiko leading it than me. Okay, It would be a way more organized army if they were leading instead of me. But, but we're talking 3,300 years ago, very countercultural. I mean, the Bible was very counterintuitive, very countercultural. And it's such a perfect picture of life at Purpose Church because Deborah, the woman, is leading it with a cowardly man by the name of Barak. So, the, so it's Lisa and Glenn, okay, led by Deborah, led by cowardly uh, Barak. Uh, then we come to Gideon, who's a timid leader of a tiny army. Then we come to Jephthah, who's an outcast who gets kicked out of his family because his mother is a prostitute. Then we come to Samson, who's an absolute mess with no self-control. And then after the book of Judges, we come to David, a scrawny shepherd boy who writes songs and kills giant, a giant with a slingshot. These, these all foreshadow the coming of the most unlikely, the most unexpected, the most left-handed Savior of all time. And his name is Jesus. Isaiah prophesied about him. And said in Isaiah 53 verses 2 and 3. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. You would never look at Jesus across a crowded room and say, there's the Savior of the world. You'd never look at Jesus to say, there's the most important man in human history. You'd never look across a room and say, there's the most influential person that will, that will ever walk the face of the earth. He was poor. He was probably not tall, not good-looking didn't have a commanding uh, appearance. Uh, he uh, was crucified as a common criminal. And, 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 and his victory came as a surprise, just like Ehud's victory came as a surprise. Eglon never saw it coming. The Roman political leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, uh, they never saw it coming. Satan never saw it coming. They thought they had killed him. They closed the grave. They rolled the stone over the entrance to the tomb. And then out of nowhere, Jesus pulls out the dagger of the resurrection and thrusts it right into the heart of the power of death. 
never saw it coming. The Jewish people were looking for a mighty warrior king. The Greeks were looking for a philosopher king. Um, but God's Savior would come in weakness, uh, not in strength. Don't you love him for it? Aren't you grateful to him for it? Number two, God saves us now through the weakness of faith. Religious people try to earn salvation by being good enough. If I'm just morally strong enough, then God will have to accept me. Uh, Non-religious people try to find salvation outside of God, but really it's through the same approach. Um, uh, They try to be strong enough to obtain meaning and purpose and fulfillment uh, for themselves. If I'm just rich enough, uh, then I'll be safe and happy, so I've got to work for it. If I'm a good mother or a good spouse, then I'll know that I'm worth something. If I set myself apart, we see this a lot today, if I just make myself unique, if I see myself as distinctive, then my life will have a purpose. Um, here's a picture of Madonna, and she's known for kind of her outlandish outfits. And uh, this was the only one we could find that we could show in church. So there's actually more outlandish outfits, but this is the only one that passed through the screeners, okay? Uh, and she explained in an article to Vogue magazine a few years ago why she does this. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel that I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess that it never will. These are all ways that we search for salvation, a freedom from the bondage of futility and dissatisfaction and meaninglessness and, and pain. We, we want to earn it. Paul says the Jews, Jewish people tried to earn it by moral superiority. The Greeks tried to earn it through mental superiority. The Romans tried to earn it through political superiority. But God's salvation comes a different way, not through religious strength or career strength or beauty, but from a free gift that you simply receive. And you can do that today. Right in front of you, uh, there in the book rack, there's a little card that says resource on it. And it talks about how to open up your heart and receive Jesus and this free gift he wants to give to you. There's a little suggested prayer there. If you want to talk to somebody about it, in the prayer room, to my left, to your right, on the main floor, there's, there's people there that would just love to talk to you. And maybe today you're not here by accident. You're here by divine appointment that he simply wants you to receive this gift uh, given in humility and received in humility. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 25 says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. J.D. Greer says, it is not what you do for God, but what God does for you. And then, number three, another point to this story is that God laughs at those who oppose him. God mocks those who oppose him. A biblical scholar named Dale Ralph Davis said that we miss the humor in this story. This is a true story. This actually happened. But it was told around campfires of the Israelites for years to come to mock Eglon in his attempt to persecute the people of God. It was kind of like mocking Hitler during World War II. Cartoonists would would write cartoons that would mock Hitler, and playwrights would write plays about it, and and movies would have movies about mocking uh, Hitler. And, And the same way is true here. God writes this to mock those who oppose him. And for the Israelites, 
after their terrible 18-year experience, they would sit around campfires regaling this story with laughter about how God could not be conquered and how God mocks those who oppose him. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher that ever lived, preached uh, this sermon to his congregation in London in 1865. Uh, He said, he who would place himself in front of a fast-moving railway car will be crushed and would be no more foolish than you who are opposing the gospel. If the gospel is true, truth is mighty and it will prevail. Who are you to attempt to stand against it? You will be crushed. But let me tell you, when the railway car runs over you, the wheel will not be raised even an inch by your size. For what are you? A tiny gnat, a creeping worm, which that wheel will crush to less than nothing and not leave you even a name as having ever been an opponent of the gospel. Let everyone in the world know, assuredly, that the gospel will win its way, whatever they may do. Poor creatures, their efforts to oppose the gospel are not even worthy of our notice, and we need not fear that they can stop the truth. They are like a gnat who thinks he can quench the sun. Go, tiny insect, and do it if you can. You will only burn your wings and dies. Likewise, there may be a fly who thinks it could drink the ocean dry. Drink the ocean if you can, O fly. More likely, you will sink in it, and it will drink you. Now, what emotion should we feel towards the gnat on the railroad track? How can we feel anything but compassion? There are certain advantages to getting older. And can I make a confession to you? That when I was younger and people would attack Christianity or attack Christians or mock Christians, you know, kind of the Bill Mars of the world or the Ricky Gervaises or the uh, Richard Dawkins' uh, God Delusion or Sam Harris's letter to a, a Christian nation. When any people would attack Christianity or attack Christians, I would get so angry. I wanted to justify myself. I'd say, I'm not dumb. Uh, I have good reasons for what I believe. I have solid evidence for what I, what I believe. I have way more evidence than you do. I mean, you believe that the stuff of the universe, something came out of nothing. How nonsensical is that? And you don't even attempt to give an explanation for it. And I get angry, and I get defensive, and then I realize that anger towards others who oppose you is a sign of insecurity in our faith. You know what I feel now as I'm an older guy? I feel compassion. I do. I pray for Bill Maher. I pray for Ricky Gervais. I, I, I pray for the mockers of Christians and Christianity in our culture because, because here's the reason I feel such compassion. I mean, if, if we're wrong, it's actually no big deal. I love my life. I've enjoyed my life. Now, I've missed out on certain things. I've missed out on cocaine addiction and I've missed out on <laughs> having seven or eight marriages, seven or eight, well, I mean, I've mixed out on sexually transmitted diseases. I, 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 I've missed out on, on, you know, losing my house because of a gambling addiction. I, I've missed out on all that. But I've loved my life. And if, I, if we're wrong and I close my eyes and just become dirt, it, it's no big deal. But if they're wrong, oh my goodness, what terror. What compassion should break our hearts? Would you wish this on your worst enemy? I mean, to close your eyes in death and have no plan for what happens next. And your best hope in death is that nothing happens. 
no plan for what happens after death. And your best hope, the best case scenario, is that nothing happens. And so our hearts should not be angry. Our hearts should be filled with love and compassion and a renewed passion to everyone everywhere following Jesus. And then number four, one day we will retell the stories of our suffering with laughter and with joy. Now the Israelites went through real pain during their 18 years of oppression by the Moabites. But now they can retell the story with laughter. And that's why the crazy details are included in this story. They put the crazy details in because they would just be regaling in laughter as they remember their past oppression. And, you, you know, we do the same thing now. Do you find that your favorite stories are how things almost went disastrously wrong in the past and God bailed you out in the end? I mean, I mean you know, you lost your whole master's thesis in your computer, a computer glitch. And you're, it's just hilarious to tell the story now. It was not funny then. It was not funny then. And, and, and some things that broke our hearts before, we now tell our stories about yesterday with great joy and laughter. And someday in heaven, we will tell the stories of our pain without tears. J.D. Greer says, God's resolution to our pain will make the oppression seem trivial. And, you know, let me just urge you, if you're not part of a life group, just, just, just for seven or eight weeks, be part of a life group. You can just go back to the Connect Center and, and Pastor Greg will get you, or Chanel will get you connected up to a life group. How, how much, how, wouldn't you like to debrief some of this stuff with somebody? I mean, all the bowels bursting and dung leaking and all that kind of stuff. You got to debrief with somebody. You got to talk through it. Connect with a judges group. Or if you want this study workbook that goes along with it, I encourage you to get a hold of this out of the Connect Center. Let's have the praise band come back up. And let's do closing worship, Jared. I've gone long. Please forgive me. I've gone long. Um, but this stuff is just too good to skip over. I'm telling you, no part you want to skip over there. Let me do number five as they come up. In God's kingdom, availability is more important than ability. You say, Glenn, I want to be used by God, but I'm left-handed. Not literally, but figuratively. Glenn, I, I want to serve God, but my right hand is withered up. I was raised in a really tough family environment. I've got scars from my past. I, I've got something in my life that, that is a left-handed thing. And it's a burden to me. And it, and it hurts. And even if I'm not mentally or physically disabled, I'm, I'm emotionally disabled. It's not about the right hand of your ability, but the left hand of weakness yielded to God in availability. Zechariah 4, verse 6, God said, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Um, a couple weeks ago, Bob Smith, great guy from our church. Here's a picture of Bob and Judy. You'll see it up there. And uh, Bob came in here. We were at our tech meeting at, at 6.45 in the morning. It was about 7 o'clock or so. He walks in with tears in his eyes. I said, Bob, what happened? He said, well, I was just out in the parking lot and had just the greatest experience. He said, there was a homeless man out there. And I just began to talk with him. We began to share our lives together. And I, he said, I, I said to him, I'm so sorry. I don't have any money to give to you, but can I pray for you? And, and so he, he prayed over the guy. And then the guy was struggling with a particular addiction. And so he said, hey, he said, you know, Tuesday nights we have our Celebrate Recovery. 
And there's this couple that leads it, Gary and Lisa Patterson. We'll put their picture up there now. And, and Gary and Lisa lead this. He says, boy, I'd just love for you to meet Gary sometime. And he could welcome you if you come to the group on Tuesday night. And he said, in that moment, he turns. And it's 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning when the campus is very empty. Here comes Gary Patterson on a golf cart, wheeling right up to him. As a matter of fact, this is the guy you need to meet. It's not our ability. It's our availability. Just saying, God, this week, I make myself available to you for whatever you want to do in and through me. And God says to that prayer, yes and amen. Let's stand up. Let's worship together.